recording our first episode for Tales and Stories from the Darkness. Today we are starting with Richard Ramirez or the Night Stalker because it's an interesting topic. There's a lot of stuff that happened in such a very short period of time. I'm also joined by my dad. Jack Rife. <laughs> Wonderful to be here. That's awesome. Um, so how much do you know about Richard Ramirez? Is most of this new? Just the Night Stalker, uh, his nickname and kind of the reputation for just being kind of a, uh, uh, home invasion type killer, uh, kind of deal. That's about it. I really don't have a whole lot of knowledge aside from what you've told me. Okay. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people, as soon as they hear the Night Stalker, they get the images in their head. He... I'm trying to look up quotes. Like, didn't you say he was also known as the screen screen door killer? The screen door intruder. Yeah, screen door intruder. So, Just, yeah. Compared to like his other names, it's not like I'm sure that was like the like one you that... hear Night Stalker and that it's it brings up like these quote like quotes you hear like the images of like the kind of fear. Yeah, you see. People. Yeah, you can see his persona or what it was that he would do. You know, being a, a night intruder kind of thing. It was a lot better than the screen door. Killer or yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to me, it just sounds a little silly. Yeah, um, unless you kill people with a screen door, I guess it really doesn't make all that much sense. <laughs> I I mean, I guess it it was a stuff like that was a big part in like how he got in and how he did most of his stuff. It might have been better for people if they'd have called him the screen door killer, because then maybe people would have you know closed their actual door. It well, I think kind of a clue to. You know. I mean, this was the '80s. I mean, not. A, I don't know if a lot of this stuff was pretty prevalent before. Like we have these stories now of like Ted Bundy and Richard Ramirez and and all this that makes you say, "Hey, let's not keep the door open at night, or let's not keep it unlocked, or the windows unlocked," because that's how he got into these places. He would find unlocked windows of just houses he spotted. And see, it's a it's a hindsight thing. I would say it's definitely one of those hindsight things where it's like, oh, well, if we would have known that now, you know, now we realize, or if we wouldn't realize it then, it may have been different, but. Both pulled up. I have up his information and I have quotes that were used during his trial. Um, if, if this brings up a lot of like his thinking during this, I will bring up one quote that says, in the end, we all die and nothing really matters. This is his view. Like, this is how he saw people. Well, you'd have to have a, a complete lack of empathy for humanity, a complete lack of understanding of human life, things like that, to be able to do stuff like he did. Another thing, every, even psychopaths have emotions. Then again, maybe not. That, it's, uh, um, it's... I don't really think he had a clear understanding of what a psychopath was, even though he, he was one. Um, another quote, serial killers do, on a small scale, what governments do on a large one. They are products of our times, and they are bloodthirsty times. So he might have thinking that he's that he's doing some sort of good. Like, well, he's a lot of trying to killers, justify what he does through, like, you know. A lot of serial killers feel like they're doing the world a service or that they're doing something good for humanity or that in the long run it doesn't really matter. Which it sounds like what Ramirez, his opinion of it was that it doesn't really matter anyway. Everybody's headed to the same place, you know. Yeah. But, 
So, we will get started with his early life. On February 29th, 1960, Richard Ramirez was born, um, I'm sorry, I've, I butchered the name, it's <laughs> Ricardo Lavia, um, Munoz Ramirez in El Paso, Texas, um, to Mexican immigrants Julian and Mercedes Ramirez. Um, his dad was a former cop police officer and i find that to be very relevant in this situation just because very aware of the rules very aware of of what cops look for when they investigate very aware of all of that yeah i mean um he was said to be a very violent uh, alcoholic when he was younger uh very aggressive with his wife and he was the youngest of five kids that makes a lot of sense honestly uh, later on, his dad became a laborer for the Santa Fe Railroad once they moved to Texas, um, out of Mexico. Uh, in the ni uh, 1970, at age 10, he started smoking uh, marijuana. So, very early drug use. He's, he's um, exposed to this abuse, alcohol abuse, um, watching, you know, the screaming and stuff, having, you know, watching his older siblings go through it. So, it's not a very fun start. Uh, in 1972, when he was 12, he was very close to his cousin Miguel, or also known as Mike Ramirez. He was a, an Army Green Beret uh, in Vietnam. So, by the time that Richard was, hearing, was hanging out with him, he was a very unstable person. Oh, absolutely. You're, you don't come back from that the same person, for sure. No, it was, um... Also, to his family, he was known as Richie. Okay. So I may uh, refer to him as Richie sometimes, but I will continue from here on out calling his uh, cousin Mike, because that's what they called him. Um, at the age of 12 as well, he would show Richard photos of uh, very lewd photos of murders that took place in Vietnam that his cousin committed or other soldiers did. Okay. Some of them were him posing with their decapitated heads. Yeah, definitely not something for... How old was he at the time? This is 1972, so he was 12. Yeah, definitely not something to show to a 12-year-old and expect him to be, uh, you know, pretty, uh, you know, to be an adjusted person. This was um, also where we would probably say that he started to put the connections between violence and sex together. Oh, okay. So he started to say, if you want this, this is what you have to do to get it. That's okay. what he was being shown by this. Okay. Um, I wouldn't say this is, like, don't feel bad for him at this point, because he did really awful things, but he often said that he would sleep in cemeteries at night to get away from his father. Alright, well, that's pretty deep. When he was younger, because it was quiet. So, I mean, that sounds really sad, but knowing the stuff he did, I have, it's not that sad. Um, in 1973... Mike shot his wife, Jessie, in the face with a thirty-eight caliber revolver right in front of Richard. Oh, wow. Yes. Of course, she was dead right, you know, instantly. Yeah. There was no saving her, no nothing. He pled insanity and was only sentenced to four years. He was out in 1977 after serving the four years in a mental institute. Okay. This is where he started to make the connection that you can get away with this. If you plead for insanity, you can get away with murder. 
later in 1973, he moved in with his older sister, Ruth, and her uh, her husband, Roberto, who was known as a peeping Tom. He started to show Richard uh, tips on how to stalk people. So there's that. Also, Mike was also teaching um, Richard military skills, including how to kill silently. I wonder where that played a part in. Yeah. I wonder, you know, you have the skills of how to stop people being a peeping Tom, but you also have how to get away with it silently, and then putting the fact that he watched someone get murdered in front of him, and the dude got away with it. Right, which would not be a, you know, uh, not a deterrent at all, huh? I mean, all of these played a really big factor. Yeah, none of it would deter him from being a killer. Um... During this time, he also got into Satanism. Which, I will say this. It, it's people like Richard that give people who, you know, follow Satanism a really bad name. Because, yeah. like, that's not what most Satanists do. Like, he was the worst example. Like, he was into the whole human sacrifice thing. Um, During his teen years, he had, ver- he had very graphic fantasies in uh he also uh took a job at the local holiday inn this is where one of his first occurrences happened with violence towards another person okay. he stole a pass key and broke into a couple's room oh wow oh right as he walked in the wife was just getting out of the shower which okay. he did attempt to rape her and there was a struggle but her husband came in at time and beat him senseless oh yeah but all charges were dropped because they were from out of town and they didn't want to come back for a trial to testify okay they just figured he was just a, a weirdo yeah mine, mine he was in junior high at this time holy shit well i won't he's in high school junior high was kind of Sorry, uh, sorry for the, the that was the genuine i was genuinely surprised when you yeah, said no. he was in junior high because Johnny's 12 years old and in junior <laughs> yeah. high, and the idea no, of him was, doing something like that. It was that more high just, school. He's more like still, a freshman in high school, like 15, once you get a job. 15 years old, man, wow. Yeah, but all charges. The only thing they could do to him at that point was just fire him. That was the only thing they could do at that time, was just fire him. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah. Because, I mean, he's not even old enough to charge. Richard dropped out of high school, uh, Jefferson High School, in the ninth grade. And by the age of 22, he had moved to California permanently. This okay. is where stuff goes down. Well, they say California is the land of weirdos. You're, you're not wrong. I mean, it, it, in, also in his younger years, he had two head injuries. One of them was by a swing to the front of his head. Okay. Um, I don't, I was not aware of the other, but I do know it was another major head injury. Okay, like how, like as being somebody who suffered two concussions at the same time front and back I can honestly say I, I can definitely see where it could have changed my thinking process but I don't think that would contribute to somebody who are you'd already you would already have to have that mental disposition to be able to do something like that for it to affect you in that way yeah I don't think a head injury in and of itself would make you homicidal especially not on a serial level i think if you were already mentally unstable they could potentially make it you know exacerbate that situation Uh, but i don't think it would create in and of itself 
that situation. When he mo- so he would have moved to California in 1982, at the age of 22. Um, it was uh, a lot of his Night Stalker crimes were some of the first, but he was later linked to one that happened, uh, and this is the starting point of his murders was April 10th of 1984. And the array of weapons he used during these crimes were a handgun, knives, a machete, a tire iron, and a hammer. Wow. Violent. Very violent. Very, very hands-on. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Very up close and personal. Yeah, because it's not like he used, like, a shotgun. Like, he used a tire iron. And I believe the handgun was and to a handgun. make sure that he didn't, make sure that, you know, nobody survived no matter what. Yeah, no, he wanted this to be personal. I feel that. I mean, I feel that that's what he was definitely trying to accomplish. Oh, yeah. So, the first one that he was actually linked to, um, he murdered nine-year-old May Lee Young um, in the basement of a hotel where he was living at the time in Tenderloin District of San Francisco. Odd that he would start with a child. This, he had no restraint. He had no limits. His uncle in the whole Vietnam thing. Yeah. You know what I mean? Convincing him that something like that would be acceptable. Yeah. That Yeah, it was, it would have been from that. Because that would be something that, they, you know, in Vietnam wouldn't have been really thought of, you know, too big of a deal. Because whenever it comes to some serial killer, some would refuse to go anywhere near a child. Well, I mean, that's the thing. is You, you, go, to, you go to prison where, where you got hardened criminals, guys that have killed 10 and 12 other grown men. They find out you hurt a child, and that's the only night you'll ever spend there. Yeah. So it's just odd that that would be his first choice. Like I said, I would say that would definitely have a lot to do more so with his uh, his uncle messing him up with the probably pictures of such things in you know in, in his youth, where it didn't shock him or wouldn't shock him the way it would the average person. Yeah. Um, it was seen that she was sexually assaulted before being stabbed and, uh, hanged from a pipe. DNA was the only way he was able to be linked to the crime, but here's the interesting thing. There was a DNA of another person there, but there, somebody else, somebody else. Or, or came in after the fact, perhaps? That could have been, yeah. And they um, didn't report it because they didn't really know. What to, you know what I mean? Yeah, there was suspects. There, there were some suspects found, but none were named. Um, and I think the charges were dropped on him because there wasn't enough evidence, even though his DNA was found at the scene. But at that point, he, he was already there, so it would have been hard in that day and age to. He lived there, yeah. It, yeah, to, to get you know, I mean, all his DNA was there. Well, so would you know, fifteen other people. Yeah. Plus the fact that. You know, but if they would have had the if they would have had the knowledge about the breaking and entering at the hotel that was never pushed, it could have been a different story. Yeah, his first night stalker, the, what considered the night stalker crimes, um, his first one was June twenty eighth of nineteen eighty four. Seventy nine year old Jeannie Vincow was found brutally murdered in her apartment in Glazelle Park in Los Angeles. She was stabbed repeatedly while sleeping, and her throat was slashed almost to the point of decapitation. Fingerprints were found on the mesh screen he used to get into her apartment. Okay, that was where he got the screen door intruder. That, that might also be in, but it's mainly the fact that, you know, that's his way of entering. Right. Was through doors and everything. Okay. Um, the second 
incident was a uh, March. He took a very long break between this, might I add. Like, there wasn't a big break uh, between the April 10th murder and the June 28th. But Night Stalker, crime-wise, in these series, from June 28th of 84 to March 17th of 85 was his next crime. Okay, so, well, that's probably, honestly, how he had such a long run was in taking the break to where they couldn't really put him together. Because like we talked about before, after that 48 hours and, you know, after a certain period of time, it just becomes so difficult to solve a murder that they, he, he kind of counted on that. And again, with having family and law enforcement, he would know that. Uh, yeah. Um... 22-year-old Maria Hernandez was attacked outside her home in Rosemond, California. Uh, he shot towards her face with a 22 caliber handgun, but she survived after she pulled into her garage. Uh, she survived because the bullet ricocheted off her keys when she shielded her face. Oh, wow. So she made it by absolute chance. Because he would have shot her in the face. Absolutely. But when she went to go guard her, her face with her hands, it ricocheted off of her keys. Yeah, lucky it was a small caliber pistol. Yeah, it was twenty two. Yeah, very lucky it was a small caliber pistol. And um, I'm assuming she didn't she didn't make it, though, entirely. No, she you know, she survived the whole attempt. Oh, she Okay, okay, so that's... that's he was trying so, to get in and out of this as fast as possible. Okay, and it... Because okay, it is a home invasion. Gotcha. Um... But her roommate was not so lucky. Oh, no. 34-year-old Dale Yoshi Okazaki heard the shot and hid under the counter, but when he entered the kitchen, he found her and shot her in the face, killing her instantly. Oh, goodness. Um, Within an hour, he found 30-year-old Veronica Yu, pulled her out of her car in Monterey Park, California, where she was shot twice with the handgun, and he fled. She was pronounced dead at the hospital, and this got very big media coverage instantly, because within one day, there's two murders and one attempted murder. Yeah, yeah, and uh, they were so close together that there's no choice, you know, but to follow it as if it was all one person. Oh, absolutely, because, like I said, it was within an hour. Right, right. Um, He was described as having curly hair, bulging eyes, with widespread rotting teeth. And there, the valley intruder was introduced. Okay, so that's where they went past the screen door thing and, and made it a little more specific? Yeah. Okay. Um, the next attack was 10 days later. On March 27th of 1985, Ramirez entered the home that he had previously burglarized a year earlier. In, I want to say, Whittier, California. Okay. Um, at approximately 2 a.m., he killed the sleeping Vincent Charles uh, Zaria who was 84 years old, with a gunshot to the head with the same 22 caliber handgun. Zarya's wife, Maxine, um, at age 44, was awakened by the gunshot. Okay. Ramirez beat her, bound her while demanding to know where her valuables were. While he ransacked her room, Ma- Maxine escaped her bonds and retrieved a handgun from, or a shotgun from under the bed. Oh, nice. But, um, which was always kept loaded. She pointed it at him, pulled the trigger, and this was the one day the gun was not loaded. Oh my goodness. Because their grandkids had visited prior, and he had taken the bullets out of his gun. Uh. So this was the one day the gun was not loaded. 
which wow. made Ramirez very angry, and he shot her three times with the twenty-two caliber. He fetched a large carving knife, where he stabbed her several times, then gouged out her eyes and placed them in a jewelry box, which he took with him. He took that personally, huh? Yes. Yeah. Um, well, the, in all reality, that could have been the end for him, because if that gun had been loaded, that would have That would have stopped it right then and there. Yeah, he'd have been done right then and there, and he realized how close he was, which, of course, and obviously enraged him. Oh, yeah, no, it... Um, all of these were shown to be post-mortem. Yeah, so the, the three shots from the pistol were, that was it. That was it, but he still, but even afterwards. But he was afterwards. so angry, yeah, he was so angry that it was just kind of almost a crime of passion from somebody who was not a crime of passion kind of person. Yeah. Ramirez so left. Was meticulous in their pursuits that all of a sudden just snapped because of, of anger. And we, we as, as people who wouldn't commit atrocities, think that you would have to be angry to be a serial killer. And the reality is that he did all that without anger, and when he was angered, it showed. Oh, yeah. So the, so the idea that he was, the people he killed without gouging out their eyes and putting them in jewelry boxes and without shooting them and then taking in, without doing all that stuff, he did that without anger. He just did that because he wanted to. He did that because he wanted to, but she actually invoked anger in him. And it's just, it's just a, a strange thought to think of somebody doing that peacefully and then being angered by somebody in the process of doing it. It's just so counter what we're what we feel as as people yeah um he left footprints from a pair of avia sneakers um which were found in the flower beds okay or no the foot uh, pair of footprints was found in the flower beds which the police photographed and cast the the prints this was basically the only evidence police had at the time Bullets found at the scene were matched to those found at previous attacks, so they were able to link it to the same killer, which is where he garnered the serial killer status. Okay. Um, their bodies were discovered by their son, Peter. So that's how... Um, May 14th of 1985, Ramirez returned to Monterey Park, which is where he actually attacked Veronica Yu, and entered the home of Bill... I might need to try pronouncing this. Where are we at? D-O-I. Uh, I just believe that's Doy. Bill Doy, who was 66, and his wife Lillian Doy, who was also, uh, she was 56, he was 66. Sorry. Um, he su uh, surprising Doy in his bedroom, Ramirez shot him in the face with a twenty two semi-automatic pistol. Um, as Doy went for his own handgun. Um, See, I think it would be... You know, important for people to realize that having a weapon in your home is not just the most important thing about this. That's the second person that had a gun in their house that still was intruded upon and had their life taken. So it's not always just about having a weapon. It's about having it and knowing how to appropriately use it and not just have it because he we was see still that alive after the shot to the head. Well, yeah. So well, he beat that's possible. he beat the man. Uh, into unconsciousness and then returned for his wife, who was um, bedridden because she was disabled. Um, he bound her with thumb cuffs, which I'm not entirely sure what those are. It's pretty much, they're like handcuffs, but it's exactly what you would expect. They're, they're smaller versions of handcuffs that go around the thumbs. They're even more debilitating and usually used behind the back. Um, where she was... Um, where she was found and then um, sexually assaulted. He had ransacked the house for valuables. Um, 
Bill Doy did die of his injuries later in the hospital. So while he was left alive at the crime scene, he eventually did die from his injuries, and of course, Lillian survived. Which has to be something so... He, he left a lot of people alive, surprisingly. Like, he left some of his victims, mainly for the sheer fact that he wanted them to live with this terror. Um, he has five counts of just attempted murder. And this might fall under that, or one of the counts of just sexual assault. But I don't think since he didn't really attack her, I have a feeling this probably falls under one of his counts of sexual assault. And burglary. Because um, there wasn't really any threat on her life. I mean, of course, it's still awful, but it wasn't a direct threat in her life. Like, she wasn't um, shot at like uh, Maria was. Um, on the night of May 29th of 1985, Ramirez drew, uh, drove a stolen Mercedes-Benz to Monrova, California. I'm sorry about, like, names and places. They're kind of, um, odd to me. I've never read these before. Um, and stopped at the house of Mabel or Ma Bell, who was 83, and her sister Florence or Nettie Lang of 81. Finding a hammer in the kitchen, he bludgeoned and bound the invalid Lang in her bedroom then, then bound and bludgeoned Belle before using an electrical cord to shock the women. After sexually assaulting Lang, he used Belle's lipstick to draw a pentagram on her thigh as well as the walls of both mm -hmm. bedrooms. This was discovered two days later. Um, both women were found alive but comatose and Belle later died from her injuries. So he left um, Florence alive. But killed poor Ma Bell. That's crazy to think, though. Um, I feel like the only thing in common with his crimes was the fact that they were intrusions. And he would usually kill the men first. I think that's probably the where, what made it hard to connect these. Is the fact that the only thing that they have in common is they're just intrusions. These were just normal, everyday people. You know, without having a specific target, whether it be just young women or um just older women or houses with children in them this could have been anybody and i feel like that's the most terrifying to think about um it's it's just crazy to me um the next day of may 30th 1985 ramirez drove the same car to burbank california um and snuck into the home of carol kyle of uh, age 42. At gunpoint, he bound Kyle and her 11-year-old son with handcuffs. So, I feel like this is the first instinct in the, in, like, the news where it was found that he had a child involved. Until we found out later of Mei Liang, or Leung, I believe it is. Um, but it's just crazy to think, because some serial killers, they won't touch kids. Like, they won't go anywhere near or, like, hurt a child. But then you have someone like him that has absolutely, like, no, like, no limits to anything that was done. The next, um, he ransacked the house after handcuffing them both. He released Kyle to direct him to where the family valuables were. Then he sodomized her repeatedly. Ramirez also repeatedly ordered her to not look at him and telling her 
at one point that he would cut her eyes out. He fled the scene after retrieving the child from the closet and binding them to, again with handcuffs. It's crazy to think another human being could do something like this. It's It really is insane. And just to call back to say, you know, if you do this again, if you look at me in the eyes, is that him being almost remorseful for what he's doing? Like, he doesn't want to look at this as an actual person that he's hurting or is he just that awful? I mean, of course he's awful, but I, it's, it's just crazy. Um, on the night of July 2nd of 1985, he drove a stolen Toyota to Arcadia, California and randomly selected a home. Um, the occupant was Mary Louise Cannon, age 75. After quietly entering the widowed grandmother's home, he found her asleep in the bedroom and he bludgeoned her to unconsciousness with a lamp and then repeatedly stabbed her using a 10-inch butcher knife from the kitchen and she was found dead at the crime scene. So he literally was just looking for a house to go into. Like, he had no target. He didn't stalk the house first. He just did that for the fact that it was spur of the moment and he wanted to hurt somebody. Three days later, on July 5th of 1985, Ramirez broke into the home uh, in Serena, Seria, Madre, Madre, California, and bludgeoned 16-year-old Whitney Bennett with a tire iron as she slept in her bedroom. After searching in vain for a uh, knife in the kitchen, Ramirez attempted to strangle the girl with a telephone cord. Uh, he startled, he was startled to see, uh, sparks from the cord he was using, and when the victim began to breathe, he fled the house, believing that Jesus Christ had intervened to save her. Bennett survived, um, the savage beating and required 478 stitches to close the laceration on her scalp. That's crazy. She was 16, needing 478 stitches to the scalp after being hit with a tire iron and then strangled with a telephone cord. And they're going on to say that Jesus had intervened. That's... Two days later, on July 7th of 1985, Ramirez burglarized the home of Joyce Lucille Nelson, age 61, again in Monterey Park. Finding her asleep in, on her living room couch, he beat her to death, first using his fists and kicking her in the head. A shoe print from an Avia sneaker uh, was left imprinted on her face. After cruising other two neighborhoods, he returned to Monterey Park uh, and chose the house of Sophie Dickman of age 63. Ramirez assaulted her, handcuffed her at gunpoint, and attempted to, uh, um, you know, there was attempted sexual assault there. He stole her jewelry, and when she swore to him, uh, when she swore to him that he would have taken everything of value, he told her to swear to Satan. So he was, some of the, I think, 
going on some of his crimes, he would make his victims swear to Satan, or he would kill them. And in some cases, they did swear, and he just wouldn't go for it. Um, he took a bit longer of a break. I would say, um, 13 days. I think that's probably the, probably the longest he goes without actually doing anything. On July 20th of 1985, Ramirez purchased a machete before driving a stolen Toyota through Glendale, California. He chose the home of Leela Nielding, age 66, and her husband, Maxon, age 68, which I will, I'm going to just say that's a, that's a pretty cool name. Maxon's a pretty neat name. He burst into the sleeping couple's bedroom and hacked them with a machete and then... Uh, proceeded to also kill them with shots with a twenty-two caliber handgun. Because again, this is overkill. Like it straight is. It's something must have made him angry. Overkill. Again, something there says that something made him angry. Well, if you heard any other ones, he literally just went through a neighborhood just to find a random house, and then just prowled around two other neighborhoods till he got bored. And he made, like I said, the last victims he made, he's, she swore to him that he took everything and he told her that he asked, he was more or less demanding that she swore to Satan. And another one, he drew a pentagram of lips on, with lipstick on one of his victims. All of it is just straight overkill. Um, he further mutilated their bodies with a machete before robbing the house of valuables Quickly, um, the stolen items, uh, from the residence, Ramirez drove to Sun Valley. At approximately 4.15 a.m., he broke into the hole of the, I might need your help pronouncing this name, too. Oh, wow. Kavanath? I think it's the Kavanath family. He shot, um, oh, Chainerong, mm. um, which I would say is the probably the husband in the head with a twenty-five caliber handgun, which killed him instantly. It's even smaller than a twenty-two. That's but why use something so small? Again, the, to be close and personal, and still make sure that they die. But obviously, I mean, if he look, look, let's face it's it, a small cal- I think the smaller the caliber, the less used... likely they are to actually die from. Well, see, but usually if the bullet goes in in a small caliber, it'll ricochet off of bones inside and okay. do more damage. But here's the thing. If he had used a, a 45 or a 9mm uh, handgun, nobody would have ever survived. The lady with the keys, uh, nobody would have ever survived. That's, um... He repeatedly assaulted some kid, which is the wife, and uh, beat and sodomized her, and then bound the couple's terrified 8-year-old son before dragging him around the house to reveal the location of any valuable items which he stole. During this, he demanded that she swore to Satan and uh, that there was n- that she was not hiding any money from him. So basically, so... That's absolute madness. Yeah, I mean, you'd have to be completely crazy to do, you know, anything like that. On August 6th of 1985, Ramirez drove to Northridge, California, broke into the home of Chris and Virginia Peterson. 
He crept into the bedroom, um, which startled Virginia, age 27, and shot her in the face with a 25 caliber semi-automatic handgun. He then shot Chris in the temple and attempted to flee. Chris fought back while avoiding being hit by two more shots during the struggle before Amira's managed to escape. The couple survived their injuries, surprisingly enough. So, just imagine that. Like, you're just having a quiet night at home. And you're just laying there, and someone just... That's crazy. It absolutely is. Um, August 8th of 1985, Ramirez drove this, another stolen car to Diamond Bar, California, and chose the home of Sakina Abouath, Abru- age 27, and her husband... Um, Eli- Elias, who was age 31, sometime between 2.30, uh, he entered the home and went to the master bedroom where he instantly killed, uh, the sleeping Elias, that's his name, Elias, with a shot to the head from the same twenty-five caliber handgun. He, of course, con- uh, continuing on with... The tradition, he handcuffed and beat uh, Sakina while forcing her to reveal the location of family jewels. Um, brutally sodomized. Uh, he repeatedly demanded that she swore to Satan that she would not scream during his assaults when the couple's three-year-old son entered the room. Um, he tied the child up and left him there. After Ramirez left the home, Sakina untied her son, and they sent him to the neighbors for help. Okay. Ramirez, who had been following the media coverage of his crimes, left Los Angeles and headed to San Francisco Bay Area. On August 18th of 1985, he entered the home of Peter and Barbara Pan. He shot the sleeping Peter, age 66, in the temple with a 25 caliber handgun again. Um... He then proceeded to do his usual tying up and beating and assaulting Barbara, age 62, before shooting her in the head uh, and leaving her for dead. At the crime scene, Ramirez used lipstick to scrawl a pentagram in the phrase, Jack the Knife, on the bedroom wall. Uh, When this was discovered, the ballistics and shoe print evidence from the Los Angeles crime scene matched the pan crimes, uh, San Francisco's then major... Then Mayor Diane Fanstein uh, divulged the information to the television press conference. This leaked inferred the detective the detectives, sorry in this case, as they knew the killer would be following media coverage, which gave him an opportunity to destroy critical forensic evidence. Ramirez, who had indeed been watching the press, dropped his shoe size, 11 and a half ABS sneakers over the side of the Golden Gate Bridge that night. He remained in the area for a few more days before heading back to Los Angeles area. So basically them revealing that evidence gave him time to ditch the sneakers that had been left, which had prints at two different crime scenes, and change up his weapon. Okay. So that was not the smartest idea. Um, I want to say this is his last crime that... Um, took place on August 1924, um, 1985, Ramirez traveled uh, 76 miles south of Los Angeles in a stolen orange Toyota to Mission Viejo, 
That night, he arrived at the home of James Romero Jr., who had just returned from a family vacation to um, Mexico. Romero's son, 13, uh, James Romero III, happened to be awake and heard Ramirez's footsteps outside the house. Thinking it was the prowler, James went to wake up his parents. Um, then Ramirez fled the scene. James raced outside and noted the color of the car, the style, as well as partial license plate number. Romero contacted the police with this information, believing that he had chased away a thief. Boy, did you chase away a lot more than just a thief. Yeah, no doubt. You saved uh, a lot. Yeah, that's amazing. You did not just save your family like money from being robbed. You legitimately just saved your own lives mm-hmm. with that. Isn't it crazy to later think that you, that you just turned away a prowler and then just to find out that you chased away Richard Ramirez? Yeah, not just some guy. Yeah. It's that's that has to be crazy to later to later find out that hey, you know. After this encounter, Ramirez broke into the home of Bill Carnes, thirty, and his fiance, uh, Inez Erickson, twenty nine, through the back door. Ramirez, uh, Ramirez, oops, <laughs> Ramirez entered the sleeping couple's bedroom and awakened. Um, sorry, I'm going through some. There we go. Okay. Um, he woke them when he cocked the hand, 25 caliber handgun. He shot Carnes three times in the head before turning his attention to Erickson. Ramirez told the terrified woman that he was the night stalker and forced her to swear that she loved Satan as he beat her with his fists and bound her with neckties from the closet. After stealing what he could find, Ramirez dragged Erickson into another room. Um, uh, proceeded to do usual, sodomized her, and then he demanded cash and more jewelry. It made her swear to Satan again. There was no more. Believing, uh, before leaving the home, Ramirez told Erickson, tell them the Night Stalker was here. Erickson untied herself, went to the neighbor's house to get help, um... For her severely injured fiance, surgeons removed two bullets from his head, and he survived his injuries. See, if he was using a larger caliber weapon, stuff like that would never happen. If there had been a nine millimeter handgun, he hand left gun, so many of his victims alive. That's what I mean. If he'd been using a uh, 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 even a nine millimeter handgun or something like that, nobody would have survived. Um, Erickson gave a detailed description of the assailant to investigators. Police obtained a cast of Ramirez's footprint. From the uh, Romero home, the stolen car was found on August 28th in Wilshire Center, Los Angeles. The police obtained a single fingerprint from the rearview mirror, um, despite Ramirez's careful efforts to wipe the car clean of his prints. You guess he probably didn't think about the one time he had to reach up and check the mirror while he was driving. The print was positively identified to belonging to Ramirez, who was described as a 25-year-old... Drifter from Texas, the long rap sheet, which included arrest for traffic illegal drug violations. Law enforcement officials decided to release this to the media, a mugshot of Ramirez um, from December 12th of 1984 arrest um, for car theft, and the Night Stalker finally had a face. At a police press conference, it was announced, we know who you are now, and soon everyone else will. There's no place you can hide. 
Um, that w- those were his last crimes. Oh, so after he after they knew who he was, he didn't do anything else. Well, but, but he didn't run. have time to do anything no, else. But run, that's that's basically all. On he August thirtieth of nineteen eighty five, Ramirez took a bus to Tucson, Arizona, to visit his brother, unaware that he had um, would become the lead story in virtually every major newspaper and television news program across California. After failing to meet his brother, he returned to Los Angeles early uh, in the morning of August thirty first. He walked past police officers who were staking out the bus terminal in hopes of catching the killer should he have time to flee it uh, out of, on an outbound bus. To convince um, after noticing a group of elderly Mexican women fearfully identifying him as El Matador or the killer, Ramirez saw his face on the front of a newspaper rack and fled the store in a panic after running across the santa fe freeway he attempted to carjack a woman and was chased away by bystanders who pursued him after hopping over several fences and attempting two more carjackings he eventually was subdued by a group of residents one of whom struck him over the head with a metal bar in the pursuit wow the group had ramirez down and resently beat him until the police arrived and took him into custody They were not playing around. I would say they not. beat him over the head with an iron bar until police got there, and I have a feeling the police probably let it happen for a little while longer until they showed up. I would not doubt that for one second. Uh, trial and conviction and um, jury selection for the trial began of July twenty second of nineteen eighty eight. He was, at his first court appearance, Ramirez raised his hand with a pentagram drawn on it and yelled, Hail Satan. On August 3rd of 1988, the Los Angeles Times reported that some jail employees overheard Ramirez planning to shoot the prosecutor with a gun, which Ramirez indeed uh, intended to have smuggled into the courtroom. Consequently, a metal detector was installed outside and... Uh, searches were conducted on everyone entering. On August 14th, the trial was um, interrupted because one of the jurors, Phyllis Singletary, Singletary, I would probably say her last name is, did not arrive to the courtroom. Later that day, she was found shot to death in her apartment. The jury was terrified as they could not help wonder whether Ramirez had somehow directed this event from inside his prison cell. Well, it would seem so. I mean, honestly, you wouldn't have any choice but to be afraid. And whether he could reach other jurors. However, this was um, ultimately determined that Ramirez was not responsible for the death. She was shot and killed by her boyfriend, who was later who later committed suicide with the same weapon in a hotel. Odd. The alternate juror who replaced her... Um, was too frightened to return to her home. Well, I can't blame her for that either. On September 20th of 1989, Ramirez was convicted of all charges. 13 counts of murder, 5 attempted murder, 11 sexual assault, 14 burglaries. During the penalty uh, phase of his trial, November 7th of 1989, he was sentenced to death in California's gas chamber. Uh, He stated to reporters after the death sentence, 
Big deal. Death always went with the territory. See you in Disneyland. The trial cost $1.8 million, or $3.64 million in 2018. Uh, that's how much it would be today. Which at that time was the most expensive in history of California until surpassed by O.J. Simpson case in 1994. Well, I mean, that's a lot of uh, prosecution because that's a lot of crimes that they're going to have to, you know, prove. Um, I want to go over more of his quotes that were said. You don't understand me. You are not expected to. You are not capable of it. I'm beyond your experience. Man, the dude was just so messed up. And the one you heard of one of his most famous quotes said, Big deal. Death always went with the territory. See you in Disneyland. Well, that's, I mean, he always expected it to end. I mean, in all reality, when the woman pointed the shotgun at him and pulled the trigger, that 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 would have and could have very ended. well been it right there. Yeah. Um, uh, another quote. The sex drive is the most important and powerful behavior in mankind. No, I just think you were just an asshole. Uh, agreed. <laughs> I, have, I was receiving so much negative publicity. I wasn't going to give people the satisfaction of seeing me down. That was another one of his quotes. Yeah, well. I don't believe in the hypocritical moralistic dogma that is called that is so-called civilized society. It's, he was I feel like he was just so skewed by other people. That it almost makes he it... wasn't given a chance. Like you no, almost no, want to feel bad that he wasn't a given sick a chance. Person. He was already like obviously but... disposition to be a sick person, and then on top of it, he was just messed up by the people around him. Another quote: "I'm pretty set in my ways. I doubt anything. I am. Uh, I doubt anything short of a miracle would change me. I do have an open mind, and I listen to them." What, does that mean, like, he listens to the people that are begging for their lives and, like, still, like... I... I don't even know. Um, blood is the substance that allows any living... any living thing to exist, but blood is blood. I have heard people... I have heard of people drinking each other's blood. They cut each other, and they drink it, and it's supposed to be a euphoric feeling. But blood is no special interest of... of... for me. Right. Yeah. Everyone plays a role and no one says what's truly on their mind. While anger and hate are two things some people can cope with, I cannot. My anger and hate grow to the level that I cannot comfort that I cannot live with comfortably. Obviously, you murdered 13 people. Um, romantic relationships. He was married in prison on death row. I'm wondering, how are you allowed to mar How are you allowed to have a wedding ceremony on death row? Because he did. Well, I think uh, Charlie Manson did as well, or at least similar or close to the time that he was. His his followers would just stand outside the courtroom naked and would be like screaming songs in his name. Well, I mean... They shave their heads and stuff like this, but that was, like, whole level stuff. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But that's for a different episode. 
the craziness yeah. that was Charles Manson and his and his followers. Oh yeah, that's for that's a yeah. whole nother. That's another story. That's entirely. another. <laughs> um, by the time of his trial, Ramirez had fans who were writing him letters and paying him visits. Beginning in 1985, Doreen Lai, uh, Loy wrote him nearly 75 letters during his incarceration. In 1988, Ramirez propo- proposed to her, and on October 3rd of 1996, they were married in California San uh, Quintes State Prison. San Quentin. San Quentin, thank you. Prison in California. For many years uh, before Ramirez's death, uh, she stated that she would commit suicide when Ramirez was executed. However, eventually she left Ramirez um, by some uh, estimates. He would have been in his early 70s before his execution was carried out due to California's lengthy appeal process. Appeals uh, on August 7th of 2006, Ramirez's first round of state appeals ended unsuccessfully when California Supreme Court upheld his convictions in a death sentence. On September 7th of 2006, the California Supreme Court denied his request for a rehearing. Ramirez had appeals pending until the time of his death. Uh, Ramirez's death was complications due to B-cell lymphoma. At Marin General Hospital in California on June 7th, 2013, he had also been affected by chronic substance abuse and chronic hepatitis C viral infection. At age 53, he had been on death row for more than 23 years. Wow. Yes. That's. I mean, I don't know why they would wait so long. I mean... Because they have to go through a whole repeal process. Because there's... I think that for the fact that there's so many mistakes made on death row, like, you're literally choosing to end someone's life. What if you don't have, like, all of what's going on? But I feel like... I feel like fate served its own death sentence. I mean, honestly, fate served its own. He sat there and he had to suffer with. I was gonna say that's a completely different. Yeah, that's a completely different. It's like, it's that's almost like reality's serial killer. You know, like the universe is like. I'm gonna make you suffer in the last years of your life. Yeah, in a way that you can't ever make anybody suffer. Yeah. Um, something I was going off of earlier. It was like, um, there was also a lot of like mention of him in, like, popular TV shows, such as, like, American Horror Story, um, and it's going on the fact that people tend to have a very controversial aspect of having killers in media, because if you look at something like the Ted Bundy movie, people will say, like, oh, you're, like, glorifying these people, like, why would you choose someone like him to play Ted Bundy? And it's because, like, like, these people were actually, like, charming people to be around. They're not glamorizing anything. Well, no, that's kind of how they got... If, if you were if you were an angry or... End of the recording? No, I don't know what happened there. Oh, I thought maybe it was, like, the last of it that it would take. No, um... So, like, portrayals of him, I think are pretty accurate. I think they're pretty nice. Um... I think whenever they had him in season five of American Horror Story, I think they played his character well. well I'm I mean, not going to complain about it. Honestly, though, if you if you look into people like that, they would have to, just for the sake of not drawing attention, they would have to 
be nicer people or nicer in public or seem nicer people. Yeah. So I think that's part of people like him, you know, and how they get away with what they're getting away with for as long as they do. Yeah. Like, if you think about, like, Ted Bundy, like, they're like, oh, why would dudes, you know, you're just glorifying a serial killer. I was like, no, he was a charming, actually good-looking dude. Like, he had friends. He had people that wanted to be around him. You know? I mean, yeah, do people tend to do that? Absolutely. But, you know, I think it's also kind of cool when you can... I don't know if cool is the right word for that. It's interesting. It's interesting, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it is, if you it's can, more interesting, for sure. If you can, like, see them portrayed in this way, because that's the kind of people that they were. I mean, I mean, these were real events. These are real people. This is real things that happened, and it's just crazy to think about. I mean, it does. Uh, it... it it's a, it's, I guess it's more of just a different way of looking at kind of the same stuff when it comes to different people that are all capable of doing these things. They all, all the have things. similar things in common. They all do things similar, and they all do things, you know, that they don't do, you know. They all have things that they don't do. Yeah. And I, I just, I think it's, it's a lot easier to follow... When they have patterns, as opposed to people that are the only kind of pattern. Random. The only kind of pattern that Richard Ramirez had was they were just intrusions. Right. That's why I think he actually there was no actual pattern to his victims. Well, that's why I think he did well is because he didn't really have that pattern that a lot of people get, and he took a lot of time in between. Not so really. He, he like, had days in between. Well, no, like it was like two was, or three days. You said there were times though he took long hiatuses. There's only one. He took a long hiatus. Okay. okay. Well, that that could have been very and well his the longest. It, that was that was between uh, June twentieth of nineteen eighty four and March seventeenth. After that, they were, these crimes were days apart. The longest he didn't have anything, I believe, was like thirteen days apart. Okay, okay, that makes sense. He 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 had a whole year reign of terror, if not a little less than that, which is honestly, I think that's kind of impressive. I mean, it, for what he was doing, yeah. Yeah. All right, well, that is our episode on Richard Ramirez. I think we got it covered. I think we got it down. Um, I'll try to make my schedule sometime around Saturdays because it's kind of a relaxing day. It gives me a week to do um, research on things and get friends involved. But I hope you guys enjoyed this. I'm sorry that I mispronounced a lot of names. Um, but I hope that it was still kind of enjoyable to be around, and thanks to my lovely co-host. Oh, you're welcome. I'm glad I was here to help. <laughs> All right, I'll see you guys later.